Hello? Uh, okay, very good. So uh, I think we're now ready to start. So um, uh, I'm delighted to welcome you to this lecture in the uh, Gender Institute series of public lectures, Gendering the Social Sciences, which is a lecture series we've been running for uh, a number of years now uh, with some uh, support from uh, LSE's uh, Stickard Center. Um, I'm, I'm Anne Phillips, uh, currently director of the Gender Institute, and I'll be chairing the, uh, the lecture this evening. Um, and it's my very great pleasure to introduce Professor Sabah Mahmoud, um, who teaches in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California in Berkeley. Um, her work has, uh, is influential across many different areas, uh, but it has been particularly um, influential in the, uh, the gender and feminist literatures for the way she's helped uh, reconceptualize uh, the agency of the religious woman um, and particularly uh, her challenge to those who see um, submitting to the disciplines of religious practice um, and authority as incompatible with agency. And this was particularly through her 2005 book, Politics of Piety, the Islamic Revival and the Feminist Subject, which um, is both a, a very careful ethnography of the women's piety movement in Cairo um, and a very nuanced engagement in feminist theory um, and was awarded the 2005 uh, Victoria Shuck Award for the American Political Science Association for the best book on women and politics published in that year. And as a former recipient of the same prize, I'm... <laughs> I think it's a particularly important award. <laughs> um, uh, a more recent book, Is Critique Secular? Uh, Blasphemy, Injury and Free Speech, is written with uh, Talal Assad, Wendy Brown and Judith Butler. And that explores the ways in which um, liberal democratic theory uh, addresses or sometimes fails to address uh, tensions between secularism and religion, uh, notions of blasphemy and free speech. We're very fortunate to um, have Sabah Mahmood here tonight. Um, she's, she's over in London for uh, a two-day conference. In fact, the, the conference dinner is tonight. Um, so uh, she's taken time out of that conference to join us here today um, and give this lecture. Uh, the downside of that is that uh, she has to leave uh, pretty speedily, um, preferably a bit before eight, uh, in order to get to her conference dinner. Um, and though we invite you all to a post-lecture reception at the Gender Institute on the fifth floor of Columbia House, this will unfortunately be a reception without our uh, guest speaker. Um, so the format for today uh, is uh, Sabah Mahmood will uh, speak for uh, 45 to 50 minutes, and then we'll have time for a question and answer session. And uh, as I say, because she will have to leave pretty speedily at the end of the session, do take that opportunity to ask any questions that, that you want to put to her. Um, her talk tonight is on the theme Secularism, Religion and Sexuality, a Postcolonial Genealogy. So please join me in welcoming Professor Sabah Mahmood tonight. <laughs> I want to thank um, Dr. Phillips for inviting me and um, the, uh, the Gender Institute for giving me this opportunity. And thank you all for coming. 
A special thanks to James for coordinating all kinds of schedules. So um, I am very sorry I won't be able to join you for the reception, but hopefully we'll have a chance for some uh, engagement, the question and answers uh, session. Despite the proliferation of writing on secularism over the last decade, as Joan Scott and Michael Warner have pointed out recently, there's a striking lacuna in the scholarship about the central role sexuality plays in contestations over the secular. This lacuna is all the more remarkable given the fact that most of the flashpoints over the secular in the world today are about sex and secularity whether it is battles over abortion, gay marriage, the regulation of the veil, ordination of gay priests, administration of HIV-AIDS programs, and international family planning programs, to only name a few. Scott and Warner proposed two different ways of diagnosing this analytical failure in the scholarship and of thinking about the nexus between sex and secularity. For Warner, the necessary relationship between sex and secularity has less to do with religions, or to be more precise, Christianity's hostility to sex, and far more to do with how sexuality and secularity are mutually constituted in the modern period. One place where this mutual constitution is most evident is in practices of the biopolitical state, whose management of the population in the service of public health, medicine, and reproduction recalibrates sexuality as one of the central axes of modern governance. And of course, here he's following Foucault's work. This normalization and regulation of sexuality, Warner argues persuasively, is manifest not only in practices of governmentality, but also of contemporary religious movements, supposedly anti-secular movements, that have increasingly come to cast the question of religiosity as necessarily and essentially linked to a proper reckoning with sex. Joan Scott, uh, on the other hand, in her book, Politics of the Veil, argues against the conventional narrative that portrays the unfolding of modern secularism as a triumphalist march of progress that liberated sexuality in its wake from the taboos and controls of traditional religion. In the process, leveling sexual differences by granting women civil, political, and economic rights. Scott complicates both these claims by showing that not only has gender inequality persisted in secular societies across Western and non-Western divide, but also importantly, sexual difference continues to play a, if not the, constitutive role in organizing the proper boundary between the religious and the secular. In an article provocatively titled Sexlerism, uh, Scott argues that under secularism, sexual difference becomes the basis for representing alternatives between, alternatives between past and future, religion and rationality, private and public. She reads these representations in a psychoanalytic register, arguing that they simultaneously assuage deeply rooted unconscious anxieties about sexual difference and secure the plausibility of the secular. To the extent that these representations structure the meaning of secularism, she concludes, they feed into its normative expectations. Indeed, they contribute to the production of gendered secular subjects. In what follows, I want to think about how the secular reorganization of religious life in post-colonial Middle Eastern societies forces us to reconceptualize the relationship 
between sexuality, gender, and secularism as theorized by both Warner and Scott. As I will argue, the case of post-colonial Muslim societies in the Middle East elucidates distinct dimensions of secular power that are not legible in the story about secularism in Western liberal societies. This includes, one, a historically distinct model of organizing religious difference that tweaks the secular regulation of sexuality and sexual difference in unique and unexpected ways. And two, this historical model has produced unique configurations of religious liberty and sexual politics in which Western power and geopolitics play a constitutive role. One of the most common ways that the secularization of Muslim societies is narrated is by telling a story about the transformation of religious law, the Sharia, in the modern period. We are often told that the Sharia, which encompassed all spheres of life in the pre-modern period, came to be limited in scope through its sequestration to matters pertaining to family law and issues of marriage, inheritance, divorce, and child custody, what came to be called personal status law or family law. This circumscription of the Sharia is supposed to stand in for the general curtailment of religious authority in the modern period as societies came to be increasingly organized into distinctly differentiated spheres ruled by secular rationalities of civil law. It is further argued that when colonial powers came to the Middle East, they refrained from interfering in the religious affairs of colonized peoples and therefore left family law intact as the space par excellence of the native culture's autonomy and freedom. As a result of this colonial ambivalence, the argument goes, the Sharia has taken on an ossified and recalcitrant quality that has remained untouched by the secularizing and liberalizing force of civil law. The preservation of the Sharia in the form of family law in this narrative is diagnosed as the symptom of a compromised secularism that prevails in Muslim societies. Now, this account is flawed for a number of reasons. To begin with, the telescoping of the Sharia into family law did not simply curtail the scope of religious law, but also transformed it from a system of decentralized and locally administered set of norms and procedures to a codified system of rules and regulations administered by the centralized modern state. Family law, under the auspices of the modern state, has become not simply a tool for the execution of divine law, but one of the techniques of modern governance and sexual regulation. The family becomes a privileged instrument and element in the regulation of the population under the auspices of the modern state. Neither the practice of personal status law nor the object to which it is applied, the family, has remained historically unchanged. One effect of this process is the historical transformation wrought in the concept of the family from a loose network of kin relations to the nuclear family with its attendant notions of conjugality, companionate marriage, and bourgeois love. Secondly, the telescoping of the Sharia into family law did not simply curtail the scope of religious authority, but crucially helped secure a foundational distinction internal to political secularism, namely the distinction between the public and the private. Thus, the colonial power's enshrinement of the Sharia as family law was not so much an expression of the benign tolerance for the native culture, 
Rather, as Talal Asad has argued, it was a product of the secular formula for privatizing religion. Importantly, just as religion came to be privatized in the modern secular imaginary, so were matters pertaining to the family, sexuality, and sexual reproduction. The privatization of these aspects of social life did not mean, of course, that they fell outside of the purview of the state. Rather, they came to be increasingly regulated by the centralized state and its various political rationalities, no longer administered by local muftis, qadis, customary norms, and parochial moral knowledges. One paradoxical consequence of the secularization of Middle Eastern societies is that just as religious authority becomes marginal to the conduct of civic and political affairs, it simultaneously comes to acquire a privileged status in the regulation of family and sexual relations. To put it another way, one of the results of the simultaneous privatization of religion and secularity in the Middle East is that the two have come to be ineluctably conjoined, such that questions of religious identity for the Muslim majority and non-Muslim minorities alike often entails contestations about gender, marriage, and the family. While the religious basis of Middle Eastern family law is certainly distinct from its secular counterparts in Western liberal societies, there are paradigmatic features that cut across this divide. Religion-based family laws of post-colonial societies share a global genealogy that has been recently analyzed by legal theorists Janet Halley and Kerry Riddich. Halley and Riddich show that modern family law emerged in the 18th century for the first time as an autonomous juridical domain, distinct from other regulatory spheres and came to be adopted globally. Modern family law, when compared with other juridical domains, exhibits exceptional qualities, they note. First, even though family law purports to be descriptive, it enfolds normative claims about cohabitation, marriage, sexuality, and sexual division of labor that pertain to the domain of obligation, status, and affect, in contrast, of course, to the domain of rights, will, and rationality. Secondly, family law is exceptional in that it is supposed to emanate from and express the spirit of the people, their traditions, particularity, and history. In this important sense, family law is distinct from contract law, against which it is juxtaposed and which is understood as the real domain of universality. In the words of Halley and Riddich, it is in the nature of contract law to become the same everywhere and in the nature of family law to differ from place to place. Pursuant with this logic, while European colonizers imposed their own forms of commercial, criminal, and procedural codes in the colonies, the family laws they devised were understood to emanate from the religious and customary laws of the native peoples. Inasmuch as religion was understood to embody the true spirit of the colonized people, and here we must recall the Orientalist construction of the East as essentially religious and spiritual, it is not surprising that family law came to be grounded in the religious traditions of the communities the colonial powers ruled over a period of 150 years. Notably, just as family law was invented from fragments of various juridical and customary traditions, so was the univocality and unanimity of the religious traditions to which the newly formulated family law was supposed to correspond. 
So how does the religion-based family laws of post-colonial Middle Eastern societies fit into this global genealogy? First of all, it is important to note that family law in the Middle East is a modern invention that did not exist as an, as an independent and juridical domain in the pre-modern period. Secondly, the juridical autonomy accorded to religious communities over family law is a legacy from the Ottoman sociopolitical order in which religious difference was conceptualized and organized in a manner distinct from the system of modern nation states in which it is now inserted. As is well known, the Ottoman Empire uh, accorded various non-Muslim religious communities juridical autonomy over aspects of their internal affairs, including marriage, but also other domains. This juridical autonomy was of one of the primary ways in which the Ottomans managed to rule over an immense diversity of religious faiths for over six centuries. Importantly, this non-liberal model of pluralism was distinct from the liberal model in that, in which the Ottomans managed, sorry, um, was distinct from the liberal model in that the Ottomans did not aim to politically transform difference into sameness. Instead, various contiguous religious groups were integrated through a vertical system of hierarchy in which Muslims occupied the highest position. Various aspects of this older arrangement were slowly transformed over the course of the 19th century. And this older system was replaced with that of the nation-state predicated on the principle of civil and political equality, with one key exception, namely the legislative autonomy of religious communities over family affairs. This parsing was consistent with the genealogy traced by Halley and Riddich in that family law was supposed to correspond to and reflect the true spirit of the people and their traditions. As a result, most of the countries in the Middle East currently have a patchwork of religion-based family laws, including Christian, Jewish, and Muslim family laws in countries as varied as Israel, Egypt, Indonesia, Iran, Morocco, and Syria, to name just a few. In Lebanon alone, there are 15 different kinds of personal status law codes that pertain to different religious denominations. Notably, even non-Middle Eastern countries like India, Malaysia, and Indonesia have inherited a similar system with their own Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim family laws, often producing similar kinds of structural tensions and conflicts. Now, one explosive consequence of this conjoining of intercommunal and family regulation is that political conflict over religious difference often unfolds on the terrain of sexual and gender difference. Any attempt by the state to create a uniform civil code for adjudicating family relations is opposed by various religious groups, particularly religious minorities, as an incursion into the autonomy of these religious communities. While the Middle East is the primary focus of my talk here, I want to remind the audience that similar debates and tensions prevail in a number of societies where religion-based family laws exist. Consider, for example, the famous Sharbano case in India that exemplifies many of these tensions. In 1985, the Supreme Court of India ruled that Sharbano, a 62-year-old divorced Indian woman, was to be paid alimony by her ex-husband, a ruling that was contrary to Muslim family law, but in accord with the Criminal Procedure Code of India. 
The Muslim minority of India protested this ruling as, unfair, as an unfair incursion by the state into affairs over which they had legal autonomy. Faced with Muslim protests, in 1986, the Indian government reversed the Supreme Court decision and passed a bill that removed Muslim women from the requirements of procedure, criminal procedural code. This bill in turn provoked a vitriolic reaction from secular leftist and women's rights groups, as well as the Hindu right-wing political parties, all of whom argued that the bill tweaked, uh, that the bill weakened the secular basis of Indian citizenship by giving way to the orthodox and patriarchal forces of a minority religion. Since then, the debate about the adoption of a uniform family law in India has come to be represented as a contest between those who champion the individual rights of Muslim women, represented as victims of unjust gender practices of the Muslim community, and the collective rights of the Muslim minority, painted as backward and patriarchal. In this framing, secularism emerges as the guarantor of gender equality and civil rights, while religion is made to stand in for gender injustice, communalism, and obscurantism. Needless to say, this way of framing the issue leaves no possibility of thinking about the symbiotic relationship between the religious and the secular in creating this conflict. The Shabano case is... Is this just flipping... Um, I'm sorry, this shouldn't be doing that. I'm sorry, this seems, as usual, it doesn't seem to be quite working. Hmm, sorry about that. Well, the next few slides will be easier to read for you. Um, the Shabano case is just one among many such cases that exemplify the turn political conflicts over religious difference take in post-colonial societies. A very similar debate recently unfolded in England when the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, suggested that not unlike Jewish customary law practiced in the UK, Muslims might also be allowed to use Islamic family law to settle conflicts of marriage and divorce. There was a bitter backlash by many in Britain who saw this proposal as a threat to British secularism that would also open the door to institutionalizing the backward and patriarchal laws of a religious minority. A very different confrontation erupted between the Muslim minority and non-Muslim majority in Canada in 2005. Let me turn to Egypt uh, now, which is the focus of my research, and home to the Orthodox Coptic Christians, the largest Christian minority in the Middle East, who along with the Muslim majority have their own personal status laws. This case is instructive for the structural um, uh, for, it, for the structural elements it reveals of a secular religious arrangement in which family law and sexuality sit at the nexus of how religious difference is politically managed and regulated. In post-colonial Egypt, while the Coptic Orthodox Church is granted autonomy to adjudicate Coptic family affairs, this autonomy also stands in tension with the sovereign state's prerogative to regulate civil, political, and religious affairs on the one hand, and the assimilative thrust of the national culture that remains Islamic in its ethos and substance on the other. Coptic Orthodox Church realizes that their members are always under subtle pressure to convert to Islam and assimilate to Muslim ways of life. This is further exacerbated by unfair regulations and norms that favor religious conversion from Christianity to Islam while making the reverse far more difficult. 
While there are no clear laws that prohibit interreligious conversion, in practice, the Egyptian state makes it extremely hard for Muslim converts to gain legal recognition and the documents necessary for the conduct of civic and political life. Given these conditions, it is not surprising that the Coptic community is rife with rumors and anxieties about how Muslims are always trying to snare Christians to convert. Such anxieties are particularly manifest when Coptic women and girls either marry or have romantic liaisons with Muslim men. Copts widely believe that there is a conspiracy on the part of Muslims to abduct and coerce Coptic girls to convert to Islam. Despite the disputed and contested nature of this claim, news of Coptic girls' forced conversion to Islam circulates widely in the national and diasporic Coptic media. Recently, the American evangelical movement has stepped into the fray, taking on this issue and giving it far more legitimacy than it had ever received before, a point to which I shall return later. A cursory glance at the last 10 years of Muslim-Coptic conflict reveals a vast number of sectarian incidents are set off by rumors about an interfaith romance, a woman's abduction and marriage. Such was the case in July 2000 when a woman by the name of Camelia Zahir, the wife of a Coptic priest, disappeared from her home. Her husband charged that Muslims had abducted and forced her to convert and marry a Muslim man. Copts took to the streets accusing Muslims of kidnapping and forcing her to convert and demanded that the state find Zahir and restore her to the Coptic Orthodox Church. A few days later, the state security forces did indeed locate Zahir and brought her back to the family, who promptly handed her over to the Coptic Church, which then announced that Zahir had not converted to Islam, but had left her home due to marital problems. Zahir was subsequently sequestered in the Coptic Church until her recent appearance on television almost a year later. In retaliation, Various Muslim groups started a public campaign that accused the church of kidnapping Zahir in collusion with the state, demanding that she be restored to the Muslim community. A number of attacks were subsequently launched on Coptic churches, and many within the Coptic community linked the deadly and unprecedented bomb attack on a prominent church in Alexandria in January 2011 to the protests around the Zahir controversy. Six years earlier, an identical story had circulated about a woman named Wafa Constantine, also the Copt of a Coptic priest who went missing. Copts charged she had been abducted and forcefully converted to Islam by a Muslim colleague. Thousands of Coptic Christians took to the streets to demand that the security forces bring her back to the church. And the, then the Coptic patriarch, Shanuda III, used his personal relationship with the then President Hosni Mubarak to pursue this demand. On presidential orders, the state security police arrested Constantine and handed her over to the church authorities, which promptly announced she had not converted to Islam and was holding firm in her faith. Constantine has not been seen or heard from since and reportedly lives in the seclusion of the Pope's monastery. These are only some of the more well-known examples of the form sectarian struggles take, play, take in Egypt. There are countless others in which interreligious romantic liaisons and women's conversion figure prominently. What do these incidents have to do with family law? 
Following the Constantine incident, Karima Kamal, a leading Coptic woman journalist and the author of a widely acclaimed book on the history of Coptic family law, wrote, and I quote, The explosion of the crisis of Constantine opened the door to a public discussion of the relationship of Copts with the state on the one hand and the church on the other. But the most important issue that came to the fore was the crisis of Coptic divorce that has been going on for the past 30 years without any solution, end of quote. What Kamal is referring to here is the Coptic Orthodox Church's strict prohibition against divorce and remarriage, other than under conditions of religious conversion or adultery. Given that Muslim family laws are much more lax in regard to divorce and remarriage, more so for men than women, Coptic women and men sometimes convert to Islam so as to be able to divorce and remarry. The fact that both Constantine and Zahir were married to Coptic priests with whom they reportedly had marital problems led many to argue that the issue was not so much conversion as it was Coptic family law itself. Matters are even more complicated. Notably, Coptic men's conversion to Islam is subject to a different calculus than women. While a Christian male convert to Islam can remain legally married to his Christian wife, when a Christian female convert, when a Christian female converts to Islam, her marriage to a Christian man is immediately annulled according to both Muslim and Coptic Christian family laws. So in other words, the easiest way to get out of a bad marriage for a woman is simply to declare that she is converted because it immediately annuls her marriage. Given these combination of laws, it is easy to see why many critics of the Coptic Church believe that Coptic women who are in different marital, in difficult marital situations might be tempted to restore, resort to conversion to have their marriages suspended. While some of the previous popes had been more lax, the Pope Shenouda III, who just recently passed away, since 1971 has deemed divorce and remarriage to be a violation of biblical edicts. Any attempt by Copts or the Egyptian state to reform Coptic family law has been met with resistance by the Pope on the grounds that it constitutes an illegitimate intervention into the right of the Coptic community and its religious freedom. Notably, the Pope is not alone in perceiving the issue in this manner. A large number of lay cops also see state-sponsored attempts to reform Coptic family law as a violation of the religious freedom of the minority community. Ironically, on this position, they have an ally in the Muslim Brotherhood, which has just come into power in Egypt. On the ground that family law represents the core of a religious tradition and must not be tempered with. Feminists who call for the reformation of Coptic personal status law often ground their claims in the individual rights of women, which they argue are being held hostage to the group right the Constitution guarantees to the minority community. In other words, opposition to religion-based family law is often staged as an argument for establishing the rights of women as individuals against the tyranny of custom and religious tradition. Indeed, this is an argument that was also widely used following the Shabano case in India. This position is, of course, not limited to feminists alone, but is widely shared among liberal theorists of multiculturalism, such as Iris Young, Will Kimlicka, and Charles Taylor, who have often sought to draw the proper, proper balance between the rights of minority groups against the larger society, on the one hand, 
and the rights of each minority group against its own individual members on the other. Notably, the issue of women's equality as an individual right secured against religious tradition, custom, and culture has often served as a litmus test in these theorists' work to define the limits of the autonomy accorded to minority groups to practice their traditions. The answer to this dilemma is far from clear and has been negotiated in a wide variety of ways. Recently, this interminable argument has received a new life in Egypt as the Coptic Church and the champions of personal status law have increasingly come to ground their claims in the right to religious freedom, a grounding that has only fueled the liberal human rights groups to insist on the individual rights of women like Constantine and Zahar. Both these groups draw upon two distinct conceptions of religious freedom available in international law and human rights discourse. One that casts the right to religious liberty as an individual right, as in Article 18 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and a second that casts it in communal terms as the right of a minority group to profess and practice its religion and culture without undue restraint from the state or majoritarian culture, which is the Article 27 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. This tension between an individualist and collective conception of the right to religious liberty is internal to the architecture of human rights discourse itself, rather than being a corruption or distortion of this discourse. It is within this irresolvable tension that the question of gender and sexuality sits. It would be wrong to assume that it is only religionists for whom these issues matter. Joan Scott's work on laicite and secularism is important to recall here in so much as it shows that the gendered and sexualized nature of a number of foundational divides that are central to the secular political order, including public and private, reason and passion, universalism and particularism. In other words, what I'm trying to draw upon is a long tradition of scholarship and religion and secularism that argues that many of the foundational divides that seem to be so emblematic for us when we are thinking about religion are actually very, uh, not only are they modern, but have been taken on a certain shape following the, the developments that uh, I've just been talking about, um, namely the distinction between the public and private and how family and sexuality and sexual reproduction comes to be governed and sequestered in some ways to the domain of private uh, law while at the same time being regulated by the state. The difficult and interesting question that follows from all this is how does the fundamental instability inherent in secularism in its constant quest to draw the boundary between the religious and the secular changes the way sexual and religious difference is regulated, perceived, and experienced. For if sexual difference emerges differentially and contingently, as Scott has rightfully argued, in different articulations of the religious and the secular, then we need to think carefully about its changing valence and the conflicts it generates across national traditions and national histories. By way of providing some ways to think about this question, let me turn to an issue I mentioned earlier in my talk the recent entrance of the American evangelical movement into the Coptic scene. Despite long-standing doctrinal and cultural differences that had historically divided the Coptic Orthodox Church from Western Christendom, the recently organized new evangelical movement 
has become far more attentive to its global calling to save persecuted Christians and Muslim societies and socialist and communist countries. The new evangelicals, as they are called, are quite distinct from their earlier counterparts in that they are far more cosmopolitan, interested in forging a global alliance with their Christian brethren from the global south, and conversant in the language of human rights, which they now ubiquitously use in their various campaigns. Their goal is not so much to convert heathens living in the south as to save what they call the persecuted church in various parts of the world from non-Christian discrimination. One of the central means by which they have sought to realize this goal is by harnessing the resources of the United States, U.S. State Department, to serve the interests of the global Christian church and by what has broadly been acknowledged as the remoralizing of U.S. foreign policy. This evangelical mobilization has been very effective in recent years with the passage of two landmark pieces of legislation in the United States. First is the International Religious Freedom Act, passed under President Clinton in 1998, which mandates the U.S. State Department and the President of the United States to persecute violators of religious freedom globally, with a particular focus on the treatment of Christian minorities living in the Middle East. The second piece of legislation, known as the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, also passed in 2000, established the U.S. State Department's office to combat human trafficking on a global scale. Even though the ostensible aim of this new legislation is to criminalize human trafficking, it includes prostitution as the paradigmatic instance of what modern-day slavery is assumed to be. The Campaign Against Sexual Slavery won another victory in 2000 when the United Nations passed a new protocol to prevent human trafficking in women and children, particularly under Article 3 of this protocol. It is under the umbrella of these two projects of religious freedom and sexual slavery that the Christian Solidarity International, a leading evangelical organization, acts on both fronts. And it released a widely circulated report giving evidentiary credence to the claim that Coptic girls and women are abducted, sexually abused, forced to convert to Islam, and marry Muslim men. While the evidence provided by this um, report is dubious and uneven, what is interesting about the report is its intertwining of sexual politics with the politics of religious freedom. On the one hand, the report clearly frames the forced conversion of Coptic women to Islam as a violation of the religious freedom of the Coptic minority community. But on the other hand, the fact that many of the women converts are over 18 years old poses a problem, in so much as the actions are protected by the individual right to religious liberty, also championed by the evangelicals. It is at this point that the report's framing of Coptic women's abduction as a story about sexual slavery becomes crucial. The report charges that the women are seduced into having sexual liaisons with Muslim men, lured by the hope of a genuine relationship, which in reality is fraudulent because it aims to convert these women to Islam. The report argues that the process, and I quote here, the process of luring a woman into a relationship for the purposes of forced marriage when accompanied by force, fraud, or coercion therefore constitutes an act of human trafficking, unquote, end of quote. 
As such, it calls upon the U.S. government to act in accord with the U.S. Trafficking Women's Prote- Protection Act and to pressurize the Egyptian government to change its policy towards Copts. This appeal is now repeated widely by Christian television and broadcasting networks and, networks and other evangelical media outlets in the U.S. and Europe. The portrayal of Coptic women converts as coerced subjects of conversion is crucial to the story. This claim largely turns on the vulnerability of Coptic women to what is characterized as the predatory practices of Muslim men, quote, rooted in Islamic traditions that legitimize violence against women and non-Muslims, The report plays on the post-9-11 sentiments of its European and American audience, drawing upon widely available tropes of Muslim male violence. Islam's inherent misogyny and its lack of tolerance. In so much as the Coptic women converts are portrayed portrayed as agentless actors preyed upon by Muslim men, what is erased from this picture is the role of the Coptic church in policing and punishing the conversion of its members, as exemplified by Zakhir and Constantine that I mentioned earlier. While rumors about Coptic women's abduction had circulated in the past, what is new about this turn is that women's conversion has become the flashpoint for arguments about the religious freedom of the community as such. In this frame, what is striking is that a Coptic woman's submission to the Coptic community and its institutions emerges as the paradigmatic act that secures the community's collective exercise of religious liberty. Recall here the role of the Egyptian government and security forces in locating and restoring women like Constantine and Zahar to the church. In such a context, a Coptic woman's conversion to Islam cannot be rendered in terms of her religious liberty precisely because she has become the bearer of the community's religious freedom. This paradoxical conjoining of her submission and the collectivity's freedom is not an expression of an essential religio-cultural patriarchy. Rather, it is a product of the secular dispensation in which minority identity has come to be vested in the regulation of the family whose exemplary, exemplary bearer, of course, is the woman. Note that minority and majority operate here not simply as legal but also gendered categories in so much as they mirror the hierarchical relationship between the coerced Coptic woman and the aggressive Muslim male. It would be easy to think of the Coptic problem as particular to Muslim societies, and in some ways it is. But it is also important to realize that a constellation of global forces have played a constitutive role in transforming the terrain on which the Coptic question can be imagined, argued, and debated, Key among them, the power of American evangelical Christianity to define a new set of geopolitical agendas. It would be difficult to imagine this global force as religious in any simple sense, distinct from the operation of secular power, given how deeply imbricated the U.S. State Department and various United Nations agencies are in the campaigns that evangelicals have helped mobilize, such as sexual slavery and religious freedom. As such, the Coptic Muslim struggle cannot be understood in culturalist terms. Rather, it provokes us to reflect on the consistencies and idiosyncrasies that the past and present of post-colonial societies represents 
in the making of the secular at a global and geopolitical scale. Let me conclude by going back to the questions and framings with which I opened my talk. As with Joan Scott, I have argued that secularism is not simply indifferent to sex. As a space of freedom and ever-increasing liberty, but that secularity and sexuality are mutually constituted in the modern period. I have shown that with the secularization of Middle Eastern societies, religion and sexuality both came to be privatized and simultaneously invested in the preserve of the family of family law. This conjoining, I have argued, is particularly pernicious because any attempt at changing the parameters of family law or dethroning it from its privileged status is met with resistance from religious groups, particularly minority religious groups. By the way, this should not be taken to mean that I am arguing that religious family laws cannot be uh, transformed uh, and made more equitable for women. And certainly that was the case in the recent reforms that were of the family law that was passed in, in Morocco um, as in 2004. So the idea is not to say, therefore, that religious family law is ossified. It is to say that there are particular challenges that, are, that are come up when reform of family law is argued for, for both majority and minorities alike in these post-colonial uh, Muslim societies or non-Muslim societies. And so one has to think about the role that secularism and religion have both played in creating that impasse. One would expect that the introduction of the discourse of religious liberty, especially in its individualist formulation, would break this circumscription of religion, family, and sexual difference. That its critical power would pry loose the rigid hold of this circumscription, providing a reprieve from this hothouse of mutual constitutions. But as my analysis has shown, the discourse on the right to religious liberty, counterintuitively, has only deepened this circumscription further investing the minority and majority identities in this logic. The fact that this fixing has been in part achieved through supranational forces of legislation and power only remind us that such matters are not simply culturally but also geopolitically determined. In post-Mubarak Egypt following the overthrow of the regime in January 2011, all of the factors that have historically contributed to religious sectarian strife and discrimination against Copts are still in place, including the system of multiple jurisdictions of which family law is a part, the Islamic identity of the state, and the nationalist calculus of majority-minority identities that weighs political and civil equality differently. Any attempt to address the sectarian consequences of these political arrangements must countenance not simply the peculiarity of Egyptian history, but also begin by acknowledging that secularism is not simply the answer to the problem, but also constitutes it. This does not mean that one can simply reject secular, liberal, secular political forms, but requires a reckoning with the strengths and weaknesses of these forms in a manner that does not resurrect the hoary and polemical religious and secular divide. As to whether the Islamist, liberal, or Coptic political parties in Egypt can rise to this challenge, remains to be seen. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, do you want to stay there to take questions, or do you prefer to sit here? Whichever. I can sit there. Yeah, okay, right. So um, 
We have uh, about half an hour for uh, question and answer. Um, so, uh, over to you. Let me see. And we have uh, roving, roving microphones, so um, if before you ask your question, you could just wait for the microphone to come to you and then just uh, say who you are uh, before you ask the question. Yes, so in the middle there. Hello, Professor McMoon. Um, you said that minority communities increasingly vest their collective identities in uh, institutions or family law as a result of its um, increasing centralization. Um, is that, I think, is that right? Yeah. Please I was, on, I was yeah. just curious as to what um, the concomitant uh, sort of reduced area, areas in which minority communities therefore vested their identities less if there were, you know, as compared to the pre-colonial period? Yes, well, um, you know, one of the uh, interesting um, developments has been that when you had um, multiple, when you had, when different religious communities under the Ottoman uh, arrangement, which was also actually practiced in parts of Mughal India, when they had different autonomy over different kinds of juridical domains, they did not simply have autonomy over uh, family law, family law actually in fact belonged to a number of different juridical domains, wasn't itself an independent juridical domain. But what was interesting uh, was that the number of different kinds of, um, let's say, conflicts over property and so on and so forth, were uh, trade, commerce and so on and so forth, were actually brought to different courts. Different, uh, in the Ottoman courts, of course, there were Jews and Christians who also sometimes used uh, the Sharia courts, what are called the Sharia courts, but they also had recourse to their own courts. And so increasingly as political and civil life came to be under the modern state, came to be regulated by a singular uh, code, secular civil law code and then criminal code, those areas of life which actually pertained to um, to um, domains other than the family fell out of any sort of a, uh, not, did not fall under the prescription of these, these religious courts. They had to abide by the civil and, and, and criminal code. So ironically, you would have thought that what would have happened as a result of it was that people, and this is indeed what the predictions were of, the, of, of theorists of secularization, that people would become less ad, uh, invested in their religious identity. What we find, in fact, is that people don't become less invested in their religious identity. In fact, religious identity continues to become very crucial to the self-definition of of, of a majority of the minority, all of the populations, but it comes, comes to be invested in the domain of family law, which is a narrowing in some ways of what religious life was about and religious law was about. Right. So, um, and that's that's the irony that with the with the with the increase of the politicization, not just simply politicization, but the rise of religious identity itself as a form of self-recognition, uh, as a form of uh, uh, what it means to be a human in this world, comes to be actually even, be narrowed over a period of time in the modern period. 
And that, to me, is the surprising sort of element, and then how family law becomes invested with so much of what it means to, be, to have a religious identity. Um, yes, so in the second row there. First off, Professor, thank you so much for an incredibly enlightening discussion. Um, my question focuses on the origin of civil law in Western discourses and basically the Ottoman understanding of Sharia law. So Western civil law emerges, in effect, as a universalizing movement. All people are the same, regardless of geopolitical location. The idea coming out of the 12th century being, there is a natural law. We are all subject to it. States should attempt to reflect it. Whereas it seems to me the Ottoman law has this very real distinction between different ethnic groups, specifically different religious groups. Is this, is this tension just a playing out of that, or does that have any bearing on this, the history of the different evolutions of the legal systems? Well, I mean, I think what's interesting here is this is where I was trying to give that genealogy of how um, that actually Hallian uh, and Riddich uh, very, very importantly have given us just to say that civil law tradition is not just simply universal. And, you know, feminists are the first who have tried to actually show us why it's not universal, because there is, in fact, what Carol Pateman calls a sexual contract, right, that actually makes women a different set of subjects um, than men. Um, And furthermore, that family law, as the domain of private law, uh, remains actually congeals that inequality between men and women, right? So even, for example, within, within Western family law, it's only recently that women have been given the rights of, of divorce and custody and so on and so forth, have given, been given equal rights. That was not the case before. Uh, but what, in effect, the distinction, what I find so compelling about Halley and Rittich's argument, which has really enormous consequences how we think about family law, uh, religion-based family law is that the, the d- distinction between public and private that is so foundational to, to, to this system is actually also one in which the domain of the private is not simply one of equality, but it is one in which uh, the, the inequality of gender relations comes to be really enshrined, and it is the space of the normative it is, in fact, it, it enfolds within it a set of prescriptions rather than just simply descriptive. What I think is so interesting about um, about this tradition, to really interestingly, to, is, is is that, in so much as as, as the domain of family law uh, is understood to be, and by the way, I don't mean to reduce uh, private law to family law. Family law is a part of private law, but it's certainly not the totality of it. But what's really interesting is in so much as family law comes to be understood as belonging to, as expressing the spirit of the people, it's not therefore surprising that when colonial powers actually come to, not, to lands where, uh, where they introduce this distinction, what they come to then in, really put into place is family becomes the place of enshrinement, right, of, of difference, because family law itself is supposed to express the spirit of the people. Now, family law did not have the burden of proving the spirit of the people in the pre-modern age, in the Ottoman period. It never actually had anything consequent. I mean, it was necessary for the regulation of, of marital relations and state relations to its population, but it never actually bore the burden of religious identity 
by any stretch of the imagination as it comes to bear, not because it's essentially a Muslim trait or an Eastern trait or a Coptic trait or whatever have you, but because with this juxtaposition, what you get is family law in so much as it's a true expression of people's spirit. Family law is invented anew um, as the domain of the pride of place of those peoples. So, you know, when, for example, Britain comes to India, they don't just simply create Islamic family law, they create Buddhist family law, Hindu family law, and so on and so forth. Okay, next question. Um, so, just up, up there in the red, red shirt. I hope I'm getting this right, but it seems to me that you talked um, um, with a very particular understanding of uh, secularism and secularization, which is the um, domination of the state over law. And, and it seems to me that what you, 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 you suggested in your talk uh, takes this as the uh, definition of, of secularism and secularization. And I just wondered if we moved away from that definition and, and we looked at um, the uh, ism part, the prescriptive, the prescriptive uh, separation of uh, religion and state, which is perhaps another definition of secularism, would, would it not be a very different situation with regards to the rights of women if uh, the setting was secular in the sense that if, in the sense of, uh, family law being completely divorced from the religious community, be it the majority community or the minority community. In other words, is not the answer to, when it comes to equality for women uh, simply to completely divorce religion and state? Now, I know that you will probably argue that there are many in inequities and inequalities that are in inherent in that pattern as well, but if we're looking for things to, um, uh, to do in a normative sense, would, would not, not that be a step forward? So that different sense of secularism and secularity perhaps are the answer. That is certainly the conventional uh, argument, and I'm trying to argue against uh, precisely that, that argument that you have just outlined, that if we could just secularize these religion-based family laws of Allah, we'll have equality for women. Um, I, I, I happen to disagree because I think the problem is much deeper than simply secularizing family laws. Um, we can learn that from the history of the secularization of family laws within, within Western countries and how it has been a very difficult uphill battle if you think of domestic violence, how difficult it has been for feminists to fight against that precisely because family was considered to be the domain of the private from which the state supposedly withdraws um, uh, from regulation and yet it is deeply embroiled in its regulation if it was domestic violence was precisely invisible for, for, the, for the reason that it was considered to be within the domain of the private. So clearly feminism has long, uh, feminist theory has long had the tools to suggest that this, this, this partitioning of public and private is actually very, very complicated and we need to think about it. 
Now, when it comes to arguments about religion and secularism, I think that has not, that shift has been very hard for feminist theorists to make because there is this sense that religion must be kept in the domain of the private in order for it to not be a patriarchal value that colors all the ways in which secular life is led. And I'm all in agreement with, with, the, with, the, with that, except when you actually begin to analytically think as to what creates this problem, it's not just the fact that family laws are religious that creates the problem. We have to, in fact, as soon as you start unpacking it, you realize that the privatization of family and religion, which has been uh, fundamental to the institutionalization of the secular political order, is really as at, the, as at, at the root of it. And you have to think with both. You can't simply say, if we could do away with religion, all the good things in secularism will hold, because in part what is also creating the problem is the secular formula of privatizing religion privatizing family. And the fact that those are at the same time privatized, actually, which, which is, again, happens under secularism, that actually makes a difference to the creation of the problem of religion-based family law. So to think, even if we are interested in wanting to make family laws equitable, to simply say that the problem is on the side of religion is not to reckon with the parallel problem that political secularism, actually, uh, um, is, is the, the problem that it creates. Now, secular, I just want to say a few words because, again, it was a talk and I didn't have a chance to talk about this much. What I'm talking about is not my vision of secularism. It is actually, um, a, a, increasingly, there has been an attempt. We had a lot of studies of religion in the past, but we, what we... It's, it's, it's only recently that secularism has come to be studied in all its various varieties. And I would make a distinction between sec political secularism, by which I mean precisely the domain of the state, the separation of private and public, uh, the sovereignty of the state to define when and where the line between religion and politics is to be drawn, um, its prerogative, to define where that line is drawn, in which, of course, law and, uh, and courts play a crucially important role. So rather than, and so there is political secularism, right? And so we are talking about there about not only the separation of church and state, but the prerogative of the state to regulate religious life and, the, and the prerogative of the state to draw the line between religion and politics, between religion and state, and which is constantly shifting. The veil was not an issue. Fifty years ago, it's an issue now. Who decides the state, even in, in secular uh, Europe? So there's political secularism. Then there is the question of secularity, which is by which scholars mean not just simply issues of the state, but the cultural practices uh, that underlie political secularism that are really not simply to be understood as an expression of the state, but the larger cultural ethos. Uh, that gives meaning and substance and commitment to what it means to be secular. And then finally, the secular as a space of epistemology, as an epistemological space, as a, space, uh, as a, as a, a conception of causality. Um, the most uh, obvious example is that of the conception of time that we inhabit, uh, secular, homogenous, empty time which is not really the time of an apocalyptic future, beginning of the world and end of the world. So these are different ways of thinking about 
what we loosely called secularism, and what I was focusing on was precisely on the problem of political secularism, which is the prerogative of the state to define the distinction between public and private and between religion and politics. Thanks very much. So uh, at the front, uh, Claire, um, just here. Thank you very much for your talk, which I enjoyed enormously. Um, I, I agree absolutely with you that um, it's incredibly important to point to the ways in which secularism um, is uh, implicit, uh, uh, implicated rather, in, in um, controlling women's sexuality through uh, colonial and uh, administrations and uh, in the way that you did. And I think that you outlined that incredibly helpfully. Um, I have a couple of worries, which I don't know if are necessarily to do with uh, your paper as much as, in a sense, shared, really, which is that while I agree that it's incredibly important to highlight the ways in which these um, uh, problems of of the sexualization of of women's bodies, the control of gender and sexuality as these pivots within the the fights over religion and secularism and uh, by, by pointing to the constitution of the public and private through secularism and and the overlay of religion um, and secular divides in in that way. Um, There's a danger, isn't there, that that somehow then that becomes a kind of alternative origin story uh, that that somehow then prior to uh, a moment of colonial administration or or colonial um, imposition of secularism that that somehow... um, religious constructions of sexuality had, had a far greater freedom that is, is, is then simply constrained and obviously got lots of critics pointed to the problems in that as well as a way in which it kind of wipes out a kind of post-war or, and, and post-colonial administration's complicity in the, exactly the same kinds of models though, though not exactly the same so that's one set of kind of problems isn't it and then the second I suppose is and I really don't know what to do with this, is that, it, that a lot of then what one does next, if you like, aside from pointing to the ways in which sexuality is, is, is constructed rather than cultural <laughs> uh, in these historical ways, tends to kind of overstate then a rely, or over-rely on women's agency, doesn't it? Uh, particularly, I mean, in your narrative, I was struck by the ways in which... Uh, you know, we, 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 we still don't really know, of course, uh, what, what motivated the, the women who left their, their Coptic uh, um, husbands, uh, why they did that. <laughs> and and it, obviously your narrative is very plausible, that, that, that it seems like an obvious uh, route to establish um, uh, a reason for divorce uh, and, and to have that accepted. But, you know, there's a danger then in, in pointing to all sorts of instances then of, of, of the ways in which, uh, you know, well, unless we agree with women's agency as the key here, that we're somehow left with no alternative uh, to, to... What's that? So I, so I wanted about that. Um, yeah, sure. Um, no, I can, I can see that this would be the worry, and I think this, this, it's important to spell out why it needn't be a worry, at least with, with my paper, <laughs> in part because um, I, I certainly am not positing that uh, there was a period before colonialism when religious constructions of sexuality were liberatory for women. Absolutely not. I mean, any historian who has even a paper-thin understanding of uh, what the conditions were under which um, Muslim and non-Muslim women lived under uh, the pre-modern state that things were very difficult. Having said that, 
I think it is important to realize, and I think this has been really well established, at least on the part of feminist historians of the Middle East, is that the conditions for women in stipulating contracts in their marriages were fundamentally changed and narrowed during the modern period. There is no doubt about this. We tend to think with modernity came women's possibility of liberation. For a lot of women in the Middle East, that did not happen. And it didn't happen because of the way in which the family became the cornerstone for the reproduction of the state and the national polity. And so marriage um, was not synonymous with the statist project in the way that it becomes in the modern period. Now, that does not mean that the pre-modern period was just great conditions for women, but they were certainly much more flexible than what they become in the modern, uh, in, under the modern state. Uh, the state ends up, instu- for example, the Egyptian state it ends up instituting an entirely new institu- uh, 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 law that says that a woman leaves her husband's home uh, without his permission. The state has the authority to forcibly bring him back. This did not exist in the pre-modern period, right? So, but that's not to say, therefore, the pre-modern period was lovely and heroic and liberatory, and what we have is the purgatory now. But it is to understand that um, conditions for women's equality were not delivered by the modern state, and in fact, what is part of the problem there is not simply the not simply religion, but the nation state itself as a political form. And we have to be able to think about that. And when we start thinking about that, again, the, the usual wisdom is that it's because the religious leaders and the religious traditions hijacked the nationalist project. If they had made it, in fact, secular women would have been delivered their equality. Well, that what it does is it, it, what it does not look at is the way in which the sec- secularization of religion and family and sexuality under the new global political sec- secular order actually creates some of the problems. So I think the, the, as soon as you start opening up the analytically and politically to think about the problems that political secularism creates, our tendency is to say, oh, is she saying is religion all good? Is religion going to save us? And that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying, in fact, these are very implicated uh, forms of inequality, and we have to think how both have transformed each other which is why you don't get some of the similar developments in religion-based family law that Halley and Riddich are actually arguing happens in secular uh, liberal uh, Western democracies. Now, the next question, what do we do next? Um, uh, about women, the question about women's agency, I just want to be absolutely clear. I wasn't championing uh, Coptic women's agency to say they should we should unproblematically understand that they were exercising their individual right to to convert. Absolutely not. I mean, anybody who has lived as a minority in a majoritarian culture knows the pressures there are, psychic and social, to be able to convert that cannot be reduced to the free will of the subject or the agent. Um, but it is, in fact, what I was pointing to is the fact that what we, we have very reductive ways to think about that. We have either thinking, well, she converted, didn't she? If we had the whole story, we would be able to actually figure out that she should be given the right and the church should get out of its business, which is the individual right model, right? 
The other would be, well, how could she be just understood to be an individual given that what the, how the Coptic Church and the Muslim majority is constantly inscribing her into their own larger communitarian project and surely this is a, they have the right, given the onslaught of the majoritarian culture, to be able to have some autonomy, to be able to say, you know, what if there was a, a, um, a campaign to forcibly convert women? Shouldn't the church step in and protect her? Shouldn't, shouldn't the church actually be able to say, well, you know, there are these instances where women have been abducted, and then that, that should serve as the paradigm for the church to be able to say we're going to save in the name of the collective rights of the cults. But these are, they actually, these, this way of framing the problem, and it is indeed the only way that the problem has been framed in the public debate, actually does not really get to what the, the, what I'm calling the secular religious dispensation in which the majority and minority are equally caught. And unless we begin to look at those structural features, then I think we will continue to be really wrapped up in this, in this hothouse of is it individual right or is it the community's right? Which is not a way out of this impasse one would have to actually start thinking, is there a possibility of actually taking the juridical autonomy away of the minorities? Uh, would that necessarily mean that secular, secular law would be the frame through which it needs to be done? To what extent is that even a political possibility in the, in the Middle East? So I think my point is precisely to get away from this idea. Is it women's agency or is it the church's agency? I think it's perhaps worth pointing out that a lot of the drive for secularization in the Middle East happened before um, European mandate. In other words, um, secularization arguably started in the Ottoman Empire. Sorry, can, I, I, can I just hear. check? Can people hear? Well, you I can't, can't hear. hear. I, maybe just put it a bit closer to your... Uh, no, I just wanted to say that it's important to point out that secularization... Um, in large parts of the Middle East started with the Ottoman Tanzimat. Exactly. So, that, so it sort of predates the um, mandate period. Mm -hmm. So the, the other thing I'd like to say is that it strikes me that the main thing is not so much whether we're talking about secular or uh, secular as such, because you could argue that before the secularization, if you were a Coptic woman who wanted to have a divorce you would still have to convert to Islam to do that. To do that. No, the, 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 the edicts on that have changed a lot. They have varied. Coptic women, for example, could, uh, did have the right to divorce for a period of time within Coptic family law, and then it was changed again. But the restrictions on Coptic, uh, in Coptic family law in general in regards to mar uh, marriage and remarriage and divorce have always been more restrictive and has always, I mean, as compared to, let's say, Islamic law. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, it's always been a point of contention historically. You, you can go the, back in history and you find these incidents Yeah, where, but that's my point, though. That in yeah. other words, it's before you had secularization, mm -hmm. where Sharia in the Ottoman lands sure. were the main point of law, you still had them at the same issue. Yeah. It just so happens you were dealing with Sharia law instead of, um, if you like, 
um, laws borrowed by, by, by um, in the case of Egypt, codified French or Belgian law. So it's the same problem you, you have, regardless of whether you're talking about um, a, a pseudo-secular state or a state that's run by the Sharia. Well, first of all, the state is not run by the Sharia, and it's not a no, pseudo-secular no, I'm state. The, I'm talking about in the, Ottoman, in the Ottoman period. So in other, in other words, the, the issue at question is not so much whether it's secular as such, but the differences. And those differences would have been apparent or are apparent whether you have the, the pre-modern Sharia set up of the Ottoman mm -hmm. state and the Millet system, mm -hmm. or you have the modern-day system mm -hmm. where um, um, uh, it's limited, the, the religious law is limited to personal status yeah. issues. So as far as, no, I understand your question. What you're saying is that the form of discrimination that women faced, Coptic women faced, and the pre-modern period and the modern period as regards to the right to marriage was similar. And I, example, but can I, may I just answer? But that may be true, but, that's to, but from that, the jump, that therefore family law itself was a thing unto itself that personifies the Sharia or the identity of the Coptic community or the Christian community is a huge jump. That's part, let me just, just, just finish. Uh, so, um, yes, of course, there are elements of it in, that are in, uh, in all forms of family law, um, religious or non-religious, which actually go back to the pre-modern period. And you could say that those forms of inequality of gender relations have been continuing throughout history. What I was trying to emphasize was three things. One is the conception of family is radically different in the modern period. And we have to learn to think about that rather than saying because women and men were these elements of gender inequality were present before and they're present now, therefore the analytical and political understanding of that fact ha can, needs to be the same. It doesn't. It, because the conception of family itself is radically transformed. Once it becomes a statist project, this, it, something happens to family. Secondly, um, the, once Sharia becomes inscribed only to the domain of family law and it no longer pertains to other, other civil and political domains, it's not just simply that the Sharia is sequestered into the domain of the family. Dome the family itself is, is invented anew, as is what is understood to be the thing called family law. Family law was not an independent juridical domain in anywhere in the pre-modern period in the, in the Sharia corpus. This has been well established by, by all sorts of uh, Sharia scholars. It pertained to different domains, different juridical domains. It depended on what you were talking about. Yes, there were edicts about an equality of gender relations. A third thing that changes is that the sequestration of the family to the domain of the private now, that does not mean that it just becomes my private choice versus somebody else's private choice, but it's inscription to a different legal domain called private law. And, and yet, at the same time, it's enshrined as the social institution through which the state is to reproduce itself. It becomes the social basis of the nationalist project, the status project, that transforms the nature both of, of the way in which these earlier inequality clauses of gen, gender equal, inequality clause, clauses are organized, preserved, 
implemented, policed, legally enforced, and so on and so forth, which is partly what I was saying earlier, that they become much, it becomes a lot more difficult. It doesn't remain as flexible as it used to in the, in the pre-modern period. So absolutely, I'm not saying that inequality, gender inequality in modern family law is a secular invention alone. Absolutely not. Women have gender inequality has persisted in various forms, but what form does that gender inequality take in the modern period under the modern state with the private simultaneous privatization of family and religion needs to be unpacked. We move too quickly in saying, well, religion was privatized and family was privatized. Well, with what, what consequences? Does it matter to think about what, what political secularism pr uh, produces in a simultaneous privatization, or is that just a fact and we all just can um, live with it? Right? And now, so you're, you're not supposed to answer that question. No, no, because, I no, this is a fascinating interchange, but I've got my eye on the clock and I'm very conscious of my obligation to get Sabah to her next appointment. So, much as I would like this to continue, um, I think we're just going to now have to thank. Sabah Mahmood for a really illuminating talk, both in its historical and contemporary. <laughs>